G'day, it's Phil Edwards, Vision CEO here, with a quick invitation to become part of this amazing beacon of hope called Vision. Together we can put our love into action to help people of all kinds build or rebuild their lives on the truth of God. Please consider the part you can play during our upcoming Visionathon appeal, remembering that it's your support that makes Vision possible, including this podcast. Life, Culture and Current Events from a Biblical Perspective, 2020 on Vision. We are going to be talking about uh, some things to do with euthanasia, uh, to do with abortion. Uh, We'll get a bit of an idea, a report card from Martin Isles too on issues to do with the new Prime Minister into his second week in the top job, Scott Morrison. Well, Martin Isles has been on the plane. He is today in Western Australia. Uh, Joining us from WA, Martin Isles, welcome back to 2020. Thanks for having me, Neil. Good to be with you. Martin, your reflections on Scott Morrison, uh, as he's done one week, he's into his second week as uh, Prime Minister, he's in the top job. Uh, What are your thoughts about his performance so far? Well, I think uh, everything about Scott Morrison so far in the top job uh, proves to us what what an excellent politician he is. Uh, He's very, very good at getting the optics right, and he's very, very good at navigating his way through tricky waters. And um, this has always been a feature of Scott Morrison. Whilst uh, he's a a Christian prime minister, as we know, uh, but he's also a very political prime minister. Uh, Right from the uh, moment that he um, took the job and he he selected his cabinet, uh, we saw that he chose a cabinet that had a good representation of men and women. Uh, He chose a cabinet that was pretty evenly split between moderates, conservatives and people in between. And he didn't fire anyone too important, uh, or they didn't uh, that he would that would cause too much trouble in firing. And he even handed Tony Abbott and Barnaby Joyce a special emissary role, which uh, signals to the base that he's not against them, but it doesn't cause friction within the party by giving them too much to do just yet. So even in that, uh, you see that he's a pretty great political operator, and he knows how to pick these things really well. The other thing is he managed to look like Stephen Bradbury sort of skating through the middle when all of the other players fell over. Um, and uh, he managed to look like he was just the guy who was, you know, brokering the peace and he didn't cause the problem and he didn't start it. There's some truth in that, but certainly um, he and others have been expecting this day to come for a long time. And so he managed to put himself in a really good light. So I think that the politics of what he's doing is very clever. The thing that I like about what he's done since then is that he's swiftly put together a pretty great um, slogan, and one of the features of that slogan is keeping Australians together. And so every time he's criticised or questioned about his faith, for example, uh, which he was the other day when the ABC criticised him and journalists put to him uh, the fact that he's a man of faith and whether that would be a problem, and he was just simply able to say, oh, well, you know, the ABC can divide people, but I'm about keeping Australians together. So he's even picked a slogan that fits him in his particular role as PM. So I think people will see this a lot. Uh, He's a very clever politician. Um, he knows how to navigate uh, messy, uh, uh, turbulent waters, and at a turbulent time like this, I dare say he'll uh, he'll need that skill, that's for sure, Neil. <laughs> well, there'll certainly be a lot of people who won't like the idea that we have a Christian in the lodge, because if we mm. talk about his Christianity just for a moment, putting the facts out on the table, he's Protestant, evangelical, so you would say he's yeah. born again. Uh, he's Pentecostal, 
uh, a churchgoer and his family a part of uh, church there in Sydney. Uh, people uh, in some uh, left-leaning mainstream elements of Australian society will think that that's a threat to them. Uh, I guess uh, if I'm asking you, Martin Isles, you're saying uh, this is not a threat, this is something that actually has the capacity to unite Australians and, and we ought to be feeling pretty good about that. Well, yes. So um, I think that we th- we should feel really good about that. I mean, it's been a very long time since we had somebody um, in the office of Prime Minister in Australia who was sort of a card-carrying, uh, very open and, and happy to talk about it and, um, you know, uh, declares openly, wears it on his sleeve, that he is a Christian. Um, that's unusual. That's not happened for a long time. Um, and he's questioned about it frequently, and the media do try and land a punch on him. And that was, he just handles it very, very well. He handles himself well, um, and he sort of has a well-so-what kind of attitude about it. Uh, and because, I mean, I think that um, Australians are going to look at him not through the lens of what a political activist would look at him. Uh, we forget that many in the media... Uh, and many who are on the political activist side of things, they see religion as a red rag to a bull, and they will go for it. Um, But I think the average Australian is looking more generally at the guy. Uh, I don't think... I think it's more about his behaviour, it's more about his tone, it's more about his manner. And you'll see he's out there, uh, you know, he's got a bit of a daggy image, he's wearing a baseball hat, he's wearing a T-shirt, he's, you know, out in the country talking to farmers and all this. And I think it's that stuff. It's the optics of his prime ministership, what it looks like on screen... Um, and, and the way he speaks, it's that that will actually make Australians make up their mind. Um, and his faith position, I don't think, is going to be a, a massive negative for a lot of people other than political activists. Um, and in fact, the research shows that um, Australians don't have a negative attitude towards Christians uh, on the whole. Uh, that is a minority view. Uh, there is a sense in which uh, we haven't always been used to talking about factions uh, within the conservative side of politics, but uh, there are factions, of course, uh, the conservatives and the moderates within the Liberal Party. Uh, interested in your perspectives here, because uh, when Malcolm Turnbull came to the Prime Ministership, he was really uh, gleaning the support of the moderates, and you might say answerable to that side within the Liberal Party, And yet we have Scott Morrison here, who you might say uh, is brought to power by the conservative side of his party, but wondering whether you think he's answerable to the conservatives or whether, as you say, he's done the Stephen Bradbury and fallen across the line, whether he might not feel as though he has to be answerable to every side, but could be that uniting force that brings everyone together, as you say. Well, this is the most interesting feature of Scott Morrison, um, is his factional alignment. Now, if we go back to when Tony Abbott lost the prime ministership, you can see just how uh, widespread his influence is and how powerful he is within the party just from that, because he went out to the media and said, I'm supporting my leader, I'm voting for Tony Abbott. And that was true, he did. However, he instructed his people, uh, his faction, if you like, or those who, who listened to him, not to vote for Tony Abbott, to vote for Malcolm Turnbull, which they did. And that was the reason that Tony Abbott lost the leadership. It was because of Scott Morrison's move, really, because there's, a, there's sort of almost a rusted-on conservative and a rusted-on moderate faction within the coalition. But then there's this big centre group um, that, are, that lean conservative socially. They, they lean that way, but they're not really with the rusted-on conservatives, if I could put it that way. 
um, to use sort of a crude way to, to say it. Um, but but, but that, that's the, the dynamic within the party. And Scott Morrison's influence over those people is very, very strong. And, and they actually decide uh, who is the leader because we know which way the Conservatives will go, we know which way the Moderates will go, but it's that middle group that splinters sometimes. Uh, and now you find him in a position where if you count up the votes, the only people really who didn't support him were probably some of the harder conservatives and harder moderates. But the, the, there's a huge mass in the middle, including some conservatives and some moderates, who supported him. And you see, therefore, he has this broad factional support. I think that that is probably a reflection of the fact that he... Uh, and it's early to say this, and I may be proven wrong, but I think it's probably a reflection of the fact that to, to know Scott Morrison in person and to see him at work in the parliament and so forth, he has the air of a leader about him and people follow him. Uh, and you often find that when someone stands up and leads and has a strength of character and direction and personality, which he does, he really does, um, then uh, people fall in line and follow. So he's someone who a lot of people are prepared to follow. And I do think that if there is going to be somebody at this particular phase of the political disaster that we've seen who is going to pull everyone together and is going to look to the public like he's not uh, a backstabber and that kind of thing, which in the strict sense he wasn't, um, then it's Scott Morrison. Uh, that's, the, that's, that's the most interesting thing about him is his factional alignment. Well, I'll open our talkback lines and you might have your own thoughts and uh, opening that to listeners. Uh, 1-800-316-316. You might like to offer your thoughts on the Prime Minister and uh, he's into his second week. Uh, Some of those issues to do with factions. The fact that we have a Christian in the top job as Prime Minister. Uh, Plenty of things to talk about, Martin Isles, from the Australian Christian Lobby. Let's talk about some of those other really significant things that have been happening and on the weekend the Labor Party conference in Brisbane in Queensland uh, and the uh, the Premier in Queensland has announced a review into euthanasia uh, and that comes on the back of uh, what's happening with uh, moves to uh, reform abortion laws in Queensland too. Uh, this is like a double whammy for the state of Queensland isn't it? Well it is really and um, you know you're seeing this you'll probably see this in Western Australia very soon as well uh, where there's rumblings down here about uh, euthanasia, where a committee has just come out and said that the government should establish another committee to um, uh, set up the parameters in which euthanasia should be made legal. So we actually see in Queensland that there's an announcement in WA, there's an announcement, there's a movement in Tasmania. We see in Victoria they got it over the line uh, not that long ago. It'll start in 2019. We saw federally just a couple of weeks held very, very narrowly defeated in the Senate. And so what we're seeing here is that the euthanasia advocates are very, very emboldened right now. And they're emboldened because of the success in Victoria. Uh, and they've always believed that if they could get one state over the line, others would quickly follow. And there's a sense in which these sorts of things are contagious. Um, and that's quite likely to happen. Uh, I probably should look, there's, there's a higher likelihood that that could happen. But the interesting thing is that when you get doctors in talk to politicians, they very quickly change their minds because once they start to uh, investigate the details of these policies and see that it can't actually be made safe, uh, they, 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 they just jump the fence and they, they start voting against it. So there's still opportunities to uh, talk to politicians. Um, but in Queensland, um, that has been announced off the back of the abortion law uh, regime change. Uh, that's been proposed by Jackie Trad, uh, which would allow um, abortions right up to the point of birth. Uh, it would allow partial birth abortions, 
Um, there's no provision for counselling. Uh, there's no provision for preventing things like uh, coercion uh, of women, which we've seen as a problem through several high-profile footballers coming under a cloud uh, in that respect. There's absolutely nothing. It's one of the. It, it joins only seven other countries in the world as the most radical uh, uh, abortion law in the world. Um, and Senator Matt Canavan spoke at the March for Life over the weekend to that effect. Um, he's a LNP senator for Queensland. And uh, the great thing is, actually, on the abortion thing in Queensland, there's a huge groundswell against it because it's so radical. It, it goes so far. Um, and there were 6,000 people showed up to the March for Life in Brisbane at the weekend. And that's the largest attendance that they've ever had. Uh, there's also been quite a lot of negative coverage about it from the Courier-Mail uh, and from Channel 7, and um, quite a bit of polling done as well by Galaxy, and the polling shows that the electorate, the people, don't want it. They think it's too radical. Um, so all of those are really positive moves. And it's interesting that the abortion issue is becoming more of a political one in the sense that you, it's polling from the people. It's electorate-driven. It's numbers. It's a numbers game. You know, you, the people are starting to change their mind on that issue. Uh, but that's not so for euthanasia. Euthanasia is not a very well understood issue. People see it as an issue of compassion. Um, but it is at the political level. It's with lobbyists and doctors going to talk to politicians that they change their mind. So uh, there's a difference of approach in both of these issues at the moment. OK, well, I'll invite listeners to participate in the conversation, too, if you have some thoughts on what's happening in the state of Queensland, where the Premier Anastasia Palaszczuk has announced what she's called an inquiry into end-of-life care. Of course, that's to do with the euthanasia issue and coming on the back of the abortion issue, and certainly exciting to hear that 6,000 were a part of that rally in Queensland on the weekend, the March for Life, and uh, usually I think they get about 2,000 out to that, so if that's any sort of indication, that's quite significant. Uh, Martin Isles, uh, let's take some calls and uh, I'll say to our listeners uh, we'll need to be quick we'll get through some calls because there's plenty to cover too uh, on some other issues but let's take a call from Zoran in Redcliffe in Queensland hello Zoran welcome along good morning Neil good morning Martin yeah so um, I suppose the, the, the big thing about what you're saying is every guy that does the top, the top job and when this does happen the main focus we've got to do is just keep everything that's been going from the last Prime Minister so that things don't fall into reprieve. I suppose it's, it's very hard to say after two weeks, but, I mean, he, he was doing the numbers for us, so there's really... I suppose he's going to do a good job, doesn't he, until a by-election. Well, what I want to know is uh, what do you think about what happens when um, things have been legislated and then when a new Prime Minister comes in, how long and does it affect it? Uh, interesting. Zoran, let's get a response from Martin. Well, um, it depends on the Prime Minister, I think. Um, so some Prime Ministers move very quickly uh, and they make a lot of changes uh, very fast. And other Prime Ministers are what they call incrementalists. So they just they, they go slowly. Um, and then there's some Prime Ministers that don't sort of seem to have the guts to make any change at all. <laughs> um, but uh, in relation to Scott Morrison, he is known as an incrementalist, and that is somebody who makes slow and steady change. Uh, and the benefit of that, and, and look, people like John Howard, they were also incrementalists. They made slow and steady change. Uh, in today's uh, world of revolving doors of prime ministers, that's, that's difficult because in order to achieve change, you're going to have to hang around for a little while. Um, and that remains to be seen. We trust that he does. And he's, he's such a, so good at the, the politics of the job that he may well. Um, but the other side of it is that it means that 
um, the change that he brings about will bring, uh, he, he will try and bring Australians on the journey with him. He'll spell out what he wants to do carefully in the media, and then he'll do it slowly and bring people on the journey. Because one of the lessons of politics in recent times is that Australians are very, very averse to the arrogant Prime Minister or the arrogant State Premier. And you're going to give an impression of arrogance if you move fast. And as soon as you have that problem, you're finished with the electorate. So politics is a very delicate balancing act when it comes to making change. And I think we can expect slow and steady but positive change from Scott Morrison. Thank you so much to Zoran in Redcliffe. And uh, this time last week, I was in Melbourne, in Victoria. And, of course, part of the Understanding the Times tour and happened to be in the Pakenham Baptist Church for one of the gatherings and hundreds of people turned out for that gathering. One of those uh, came up to me at the end of the meeting and he's a regular caller on 2020. His name is Chris from Victoria and he's on the line for us today. Hello, Chris. Welcome along. It was wonderful to shake your hand last weekend. Same here, Neil. It was great to meet you and good day to Martin and... I just want to make a point. I think Scott Morrison's weak. I think he's put money ahead of everything else. He went to Indonesia and he had a real chance to uh, speak out against the, the rise of radical Islam and uh, what happened to AHOC and, and you know and just the uh, the, the uh, thing of Christians in general over there. And he, he never mentioned any of that, so he just put money ahead of everything else. And regarding Queensland, well. It was great to hear 6,000 marks for abortion and, you know, let's hope those 6,000 pray that uh, God will put millstones around the necks of all those who are going to cause these little babies, you know, harm. Chris, great insights. And just to bring Martin into what you were talking about uh, earlier, of course, uh, everyone is saying that it was a wonderful trip to Indonesia and uh, the uh, things that were shored up by way of trade with Indonesia, uh, those things are being seen as positive. And I think, uh, Chris, you're reflecting on a segment we did last week uh, which talked about the way that Indonesia is sliding under Islamic control and those sorts of things were not a part of the tour to Indonesia. But, Martin Isles, your thoughts on how someone like Scott Morrison might respond when it comes to some of these big issues of what's going on uh, in other nations, whether it's human rights issues or challenges when it comes to uh, political issues. Uh, your thoughts for Chris from Victoria? Yeah, look, it's, a, it's always a point of contention, uh, what Chris has raised, which is that when prime ministers are on the international stage, to what extent do they um, do they... Uh, make it apparent that they're not happy with uh, another nation's domestic policy. Um, And look, there's a difficulty here because if Scott Morrison was to stand in front of the cameras and and have a go at the Indonesian president, um, uh, that would be received so terribly badly that our relationship with Indonesia would just collapse very, very fast. Um, And I'm not sure that that's practical. I mean, I'm, I'm not a Scott Morrison apologist and others will have a different view, but I'm not sure that's a very practical thing for a Prime Minister to do for our closest and largest neighbour. Um, what he would rather do, I imagine, is speak privately about those things, and that's the way politics is done. It's considered, uh, it's considered to be the right thing to do, to first approach someone privately and sketch out your position before you publicly denounce or condemn or whatever, because you give the other person a right of reply uh, and it helps you to understand the situation. Bearing in mind also that Scott Morrison has literally just landed in the job and he's gone to Indonesia, and I wouldn't be surprised if he simply hasn't got his head around some of these details, uh, because he's, he's 
the, the, the work program that will be on him and the pressure that will be on him right now to perform. And his first priority is that Australians see what he's doing uh, and they, they like what he's doing and that they see him as a capable and competent leader. That kind of controversy, he, it, it would just... It would just it would just undermine his prime ministership, something shocking. Uh, if you went out and criticised Indonesia and then everybody was, you know, up in arms about it and all the rest of it. So you'll always see Scott Morrison as a very pragmatic politician. You'll see him as somebody who uh, very much uh, sketches out his uh, program around the art of the possible, as they say. Uh, so there'll be lots of things he could say and do, but he will make the judgment that it's not possible to achieve change that way. So he will always achieve change in the possible way. That makes him a little bit of a pragmatist. Some people will say that makes him weak. I don't know a prime minister that would go to Indonesia right now and stick it to them for what's going on over there publicly, because uh, that's terrible diplomacy. Um, now, uh, people of conviction, like you and me, Neil, and others, you know, uh, we may have a different view. Life, culture, and current events from a biblical perspective. 2020 on Vision. And Martin Isles, the Managing Director of Australian Christian Lobby, is with us this hour. Our talkback line is open on 1-800-316-316. You might like to join in our conversation. Martin's on the line with us today from Western Australia. Uh, Martin, you're in WA. There's some significant things happening in WA too, and one of those big issues that the whole nation faces is the issue of transgender, which seems to be bubbling along in the background, and uh, there are Policies that the Australian Christian Lobby has been monitoring, uh, ones that are coming from the West Australian Football League, and they've got a trans policy. Uh, what are your thoughts on the developments there? Well, there's a lot of moves here uh, in WA where I am now on, on, on gender bending at the moment, um, and certainly that's one. The Football League, they've uh, decided that they're going to codify some policies around whether trans women, um, that is men who identify as women, can play on women's teams. Um, and essentially, they've very much narrowed down uh, the, the scope under which that's possible. They've made it much harder uh, because they've had to say, look, there's a safety risk here because these people are much heavier than biological women. Uh, they're much stronger than biological women. They're much faster than biological women. And somebody actually died. I forgot the uh, young lady's name, but died in a uh, football game in South Australia just the other day. Um, and so they've, they've come together and tried to put together a policy and they've put in weight limits, they've put in testosterone limits, these kinds of things. Now, Hannah Mouncey, uh, who was uh, uh, sort of a, uh, one of the, a, a spokesperson uh, who is a transgender woman um, and plays on a football team, has come out and heavily criticised that, saying it's judgmental and it's bigoted and all this kind of thing. But, you know, it's a safety concern. Um, one of the problems with this whole transgender thing is that women are the ones that come up short because uh, they have to play on sporting teams with men. We saw the weightlifter at the Commonwealth Games that was from New Zealand that was a biological man that was winning. Um, it's not fair. But also women, you know, in other countries where they've gone further down this line have to share bathrooms with men. Um, and now some schools in Australia are trying to put policies in place where boys who identify as girls can sleep in the girls' dorms. But women really come up short from this, um, and it's not fair. And uh, it's, it's a really good thing that they've put in these, these um, procedures and processes just for safety and for practical reasons. And I think lots of common sense Australians just look at this stuff and go, what is the world coming to? Um, and, uh, but unfortunately, that is something we're going to see more and more and more of is the trans stuff. But perhaps this is a small pushback uh, from those in the parts of society where, where it actually matters. 
Uh, well, let me apologise for uh, suggesting that we were talking about the West Australian uh, AFL, uh, but uh, what we're talking about here is the women's AFL and their trans policy. So apologies for getting that uh, that little uh, uh, misinterpretation wrong there in this discussion that we're having because this is very important and, and it includes all Australians and everyone who wants to play the sport of AFL because when you've got people who are going through transition men who want to become women and then participate in women's sport it's not just an AFL issue here uh, Martin Isles this is actually likely to have yeah. effects across every sporting code Oh, yeah, absolutely. And look, let's be clear just on one basic thing, and that is that a man can never actually become a woman. Uh, every cell in their body has XY chromosomes. Uh, they will always have a much greater mass. They will always have a different body structure. Uh, you know, it's, it, it, it doesn't work. It, it is a cosmetic change. And when it comes to something like sport, uh, it, it doesn't play out very well, uh, if you'll pardon the pun, the play on words there. Uh, but um, it doesn't play out well at all. And I remember recently Senator Linda Reynolds, who is incidentally a West Australian senator, said that all sports should be degendered. And I remember one of the political commentators came out and said, well, all right, let's start with boxing. Um, and just to make the point that it's ridiculous, it doesn't work. This is an anti-reality sort of ideology. Um, and uh, look, it's got to stop. I don't know how long this will go on for, but the problem we have is that I think ordinary Australians don't feel like they can speak against it because the accusation of bigots and the, the heat that comes back is pretty strong. Uh, and so we just need to get courageous about it, I think, and start calling it out. And we trust that we'll push back uh, on the sporting one to start with because it's an obvious problem, but on a bunch of other things as well. Uh, I actually think, really, uh, the, the research and the stats show that when somebody is experiencing gender dysphoria, uh, there's very often something that underlying cause for that that should be treated. Um, sometimes it's a comorbidity, a psychological thing. Sometimes it's sexual abuse. Well, not sometimes, actually. The stats show that overwhelmingly it can be a sign of sexual abuse. And we need to start talking about those issues so that we can get people the help they need uh, and stop with the silly change to policy. And interestingly, just a couple of minutes out from news, Martin, the idea that unless someone has some courage to be able to stand up and be counted and say this is not on, uh, mm. this is really, we're talking about the end of women's sport because uh, women oh, yeah. will not be competing on the same level playing field uh, with one another, uh, women versus women, when you've actually got people going through these uh, transitions. Yes, so oh, look, Absolutely. And, and I think actually you're looking at potentially the erasure of women from whole areas uh, of, of, of our society, like sport. Um, it's, it's really, really wrong. And uh, this is why the radical feminists hate this stuff and why you get Jermaine Greer and those kinds of people out in the public square being some of the few voices that are pushing back against it uh, because they see the implications. Uh, they say, no, no, we've fought for a long time for the, for the ability to say that we are women. And now we have men coming along saying, no, no, we're women. Uh, and the implications of that is that women actually suffer. Um, and, uh, and, and that's the problem here. And I think that it's time we do speak up. Uh, I agree with you, Neil, entirely. Uh, and a big part of the issue here is just a courage thing, where I think a lot of people who know better, that we don't speak, we self-censor. And the more we do speak, the more we'll be able to just push back. Because we need to bring Australians on a journey with us and say, look, this is garbage, it's got to stop. We've got Scott Morrison as the Prime Minister. He's a Christian. And now he is being seen... By the mainstream media, uh, many factions of the mainstream media suggesting that as a Christian, he is some sort of a threat to the idea of bans on LGBT conversion therapy. 
Uh, you'd be across this development. Uh, he's getting a little bit of flack in the media. Uh, what's the significance of, of the fact that uh, there's a threat now to, uh, to the LGBT position? Well, first thing first, I think um, the, the the indication here is, or what we're seeing here is something we can expect to see more of, and that is that the media know this guy's a Christian, but they also know that uh, if they go too hard against him, uh, the Australian people won't like it if it's just because of his religion, because he's batted that off very, very well, the criticism that he's just religious. So what they're going to do now is they're going to move to a footing where they can portray him as a bigot and a homophobe, which is their standard MO. Um, when it comes to discrediting a Christian leader. Uh, and so what they're going to do is they're going to pick up all of these really controversial trans and gay policies and show how that he's opposed and paint that in some kind of negative light. Now, therefore, we need to understand what the policy is and see, well, is it true what they're saying about him? And uh, this is very confusing, uh, this idea of a conversion therapy policy. Um, and people need to track with me as I try and explain it. What they mean when they say conversion therapy is that if you have a person or even a child who says that they feel like a girl when they're actually a boy and the parent comes along and says, look, why don't you remain a boy? Um, or why don't we just make sure you don't wear that dress for a while? Because the statistics show that 90% of kids in your situation grow out of it when left to themselves and when we don't take them down that gender transition pathway. Now, the activists will say that that parent is gender converting the child because the child feels like a girl and the parent's saying, no, no, I think you're a boy because you're biologically a boy. And the parent is therefore telling them something different to how they feel in their mind and how they feel in their mind is their true gender identity. So the parent is converting them away from their identity and they want to make that a criminal offence. If the parent was to tell them, oh, no, okay, fine, be a girl, wear some lipstick, have a dress, let's get you on puberty blockers and let's start you down a pathway of transition, the activists would call that gender affirmation. So it's actually a complete reversal of the way we think. You know, gender affirmation for us is, well, I'm a man, and if you tell me I'm a man, that's affirmation. But no, for the activists, affirmation is you affirming me as a woman if I say that I feel like a woman. Now, that's, that sounds mind-bending. It's an Orwellian abuse of language. But these policies are being uh, lobbied for very widely in other countries. And right now, there is actually a clause in the Australian Labor Party's national platform at page 193 of the current platform. And that clause very clearly says that claims that a person's gender identity, that's how they feel about their gender in their head, or their sexual orientation, who they're romantically attracted to at a given moment, can change, claims that they can change, are false, harmful, and should not continue to be made. So there's a free speech issue here that affects every church. Because every church and every Christian will say, no, of course your desires and your feelings can change. And in fact, they have to change, regardless of who you are, whether you're gay or straight, when you're a Christian. It's something the Bible calls sanctification. Um, now, to make those claims around sexuality and gender identity would be illegal. Not only that, it goes on to specifically mention religious communities where such claims are made. And then it goes on to say that when that harm is suffered in the home, it will be deemed domestic violence and psychological abuse against the child. But that's very, very, very serious for Christians. These are dangerous ideas. And by using the language of conversion therapy, they hide what is perhaps one of the most dangerous ideas to come out of the policy engines of different political parties around the world. Because this will see children taken from Christian parents. Because Christian parents will not want their child uh, to express these sexual identities or gender identities, if at all possible. And they'll try and do that in a loving and compassionate way. 
uh, we presume, uh, but they won't be able to do that. And in fact, if it's domestic violence against the child, uh, the result of that is that the child can be removed from the parents. And particularly with the kids being, their heads being filled with all this garbage at school around sexual identity and gender identity, and kids increasingly exploring those possibilities in their lives because of the school curriculum, parents have got a battle on their hands. Um, and uh, kids are presenting at gender dysphoria clinics, for example, in the thousands, when they used to be like two or three a year, because they're being confused by what they're being taught. And if parents want to push back, they're going to be in big trouble. Now, people can read that at 100, page 193 of the current Labor Party's national platform. Um, it's very, very serious. And if Scott Morrison is a block on that, excellent. And I think the whole church needs to get behind him and say, well, of course, we want a block on this because this is dangerous and it attacks parents' rights and parents' freedoms to bring up their children in accordance with their moral and religious convictions. Of course, just recently we had an expert here on 2020, Dr. Quentin Van Meter, who was a very controversial character. In fact, uh, a meeting that he had scheduled in Western Australia was shut down because he was saying controversial things. Let me just reiterate what he said uh, with the risk of what's happening with this whole transgender issue. He called it a philosophic cult uh, now, interestingly, uh, Martin Isles, as Christians, we're familiar with this idea of cult and uh, that people mm -hmm. can believe things quite sincerely and believe them uh, to be uh, true and right, but in actual fact, uh, under any sort of uh, examination, those things are absolutely wrong and mm -hmm. uh, easily provable. And uh, science is on the side of, of people who would say, of course, that's male and there's female, uh, this whole thing does smack of the idea of philosophic cult. And it's interesting that we've got uh, different sides of politics. Uh, one side, in fact, as you say, with the Labor platform, uh, supporting what is easily uh, actually uh, described and defined as a philosophic cult. What are your mm. thoughts? Well, yes, yeah, so this is the problem. is the ideology's got its way into one side of politics, and I dare say it threatens to get its way into another side of politics unless we speak up and do something. Uh, and that's why groups like ACL need, we need members and we need people to take action uh, when we ask it. And it may well be that we have to run a federal election campaign around this and make sure that the party that's been infiltrated suffers for it uh, because of parents' rights. And we're working on that, actually. And that, that sounds very straight and direct and down the line, but I don't know how else we're going to knock this out of their platform because at the moment they are closed to conversation on the issue. Uh, they assume that you're bigoted and they just will shut it down. Uh, and we need to open it up again. We need to push back and we need to speak up as parents. We need to speak up as Christians um, loud, as loudly as possible because this is a problem. That you know, This is this is one of the most dangerous things uh, to come out of the policy engines of, of the major political parties in a long time. And I would say this, uh, there's Quentin Van Meter who's, who writes very well and does a lot of work. There's also Dr. John Whitehall from the University of Western Sydney. If people want to look up the work of these guys on the science, it's really worth doing. But also there's a guy called Walt Heyer, who was one of the first ever gender reassignment patients in the world back in the 1950s. And ACL had him in Australia recently, and he spoke at an event in Sydney. He's now a Christian, and he runs a transgender regret counselling service. Uh, and he tells how that he's counselled thousands of people all over the United States who have transitioned, sometimes as young people, and regret it and want to go back. Uh, of course, you can't really go back if you've transitioned all the way. It damages you for life. And he said he sits down with these people, and the first question he always asks is, what went wrong? And he said in every single case that he's ever had, he's never found one where the person cannot answer that question straight away or after some conversation of a few minutes. 
He says they always say in a full 50% of cases they will say sexual abuse and the other 50% it will be some psychological condition or a comorbidity. Now, what he says is that actually transgender is a label that allows other problems to continue to exist. And by using that label, we add layer upon layer to other problems. And so I think that it's so important to protect our children from these ideas. I was talking to a woman at our West Australian State Conference the other day, and she had a child, a girl who was sexually abused at 15, and she went on to identify as a transgender person. uh, And she's now joined one of these transgender groups, uh, and she's been estranged from her parents. That's the kind of thing we're seeing more and more and more. It's very important that even though these people believe what they believe sincerely, this is a very dark and dangerous idea. Uh, And it's very important that we engage in campaigns to make sure that it's stopped. And ACL will definitely be running those. Uh, And I think it's a blessing uh, that Scott Morrison is a person uh, who probably will have nothing to do with this. Uh, And we need to ensure that our political leaders remain that way. There's so much more to talk about. We have run out of time. Uh, You've got a meeting that you are uh, soon to attend. Uh, Martin Isles, Managing Director of the Australian Christian Lobby, thank you so much for taking some time to share these thoughts with us today on 2020. Uh, Look forward to some more catch-ups and uh, and perhaps even tackling this issue uh, in more depth because, as you say, it'll be an important one in the lead-up to an election because of the platform that the Australian Labor Party has chosen to take. Martin Isles, thanks for being with us today on 2020. That is my pleasure, Neil. Thank you. Before you go, thanks for listening. There's lots more great audio on demand, or you can listen to us live at visionradio.org.au. And remember, Vision is listener-supported. Your donation, large or small, will help us continue connecting faith to life for hundreds of thousands of people across Australia and around the world. Learn more or donate today at visionradio.org.au.